0: Glad to see you. Uh, Let me... uh a brief introduction to the Biltmore Church campuses. or one church in a number of different locations. Uh, what our goal is, is we want to make much of Jesus, and we want to make disciples. That's what we're about, all right? We have say around here a lot of times, we are a bunch of nobodies uh, trying to tell everybody about a somebody who will save anybody. That's what we are here for, and uh, that's what we're about. We want to make uh, a much of Jesus, and you did a great job uh, early on, and hopefully that will uh, continue. Uh, we got a kind of a cool day today. We've got a couple of different milestones I want to recognize, and that is uh, first of of all, um, after six years of meeting in a theater, today is the grand opening of the permanent location at Biltmore Church, Franklin, North Carolina. All right, so man great great job at the team out there they've seen over they've seen hundreds of people baptized these last six years have made a distinct difference in that franklin and silva and clayton georgia area uh great job to patrick trawick he's the campus pastor out there the the whole team uh thank you church for the reach initiative all right that stuff doesn't come out of the ground uh, for nothing so thank you for your generosity all right facilities are not the mission uh, facilities facilitate the mission. That's what they're there for, and so anyway, great job. And also, this is also the one year anniversary of Biltmore and Español, so I right, great job on that. So, uh, Anyway, and this week, by the way, if you're in the art, around the Arden campus, you will see hundreds and hundreds of, of our Hispanic uh, friends. They will be here, the uh, the, the, Hispanic, uh, the Mexican embassy will be here using our facilities, some during the week. So anyway, great, great job on that. So Here's where we are. Uh, Around 1820 or so, uh, one of our presidents, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, got a copy of the Bible and he took it out and he took a pair of scissors and he took a razor blade and he began to cut out of the Bible the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. He didn't like the miracles, he didn't like anything supernatural, and so what he did is very systematically, he went in through and he cut, and you can see the copy there is, I believe, in the Smithsonian, and so what he did is he cut out those sections of the Bible that he didn't agree with, those things, that's like, that can't. this is where Jesus is showing himself to be God, I don't like that, this is the miracles, I don't like that, and what he ended up with is a Bible that's typically known as the Jefferson Bible, or I think he called it the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you and I can look at what Jefferson did and just be aghast at that. It's like, how dare that guy do that? And I certainly do not affirm what he did. But I do, in some ways, appreciate his honesty because what he did physically, as some of us do, we often do, is we will cut out of the Bible the parts of the Bible that we're uncomfortable with. We'll cut out the parts of the Bible that portray God and his great son Jesus as different than what we think he should be. And so the challenge over the next five weeks is we will definitely be looking at some cultural distinctives and what does the Bible have to say about that? What does Jesus have to say about that? Tim Keller appropriately said, if God never disagrees with you, you may be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. All right, the theologian Barth said this, if God doesn't make us mad, we're not worshiping him, but ourselves. If our God never contradicts us and always likes what we like and hates what we hate, he's not the real God. All we've done is deified our preferences and called the personification of those things God. And so it is, kind of, it is hard. How do you follow Jesus in this crazy cultural moment that we find ourselves in? That's the task over the next five weeks. How do we do that? Does Jesus even speak to the major topics and the major issues of our day? Culture is typically defined as the social behavior and norms that are found in a society. And over the summer, we emailed 10 or 11,000 of you and said, what are the top cultural issues that you wanna look at the Bible and what is the Bible and what does Jesus have to say about that and we're gonna be looking at the top four or five, you can probably guess them. These are the four or five, these are not in order so you cannot camp on one week. So basically what came in as the top four or five is Jesus Christ on gender, Jesus Christ on racism, Jesus Christ and the gay community and Jesus Christ in politics. Okay, I added a fifth one, Jesus Christ and upgrade your security system. That's what what I'm going to add to that. But we're going to look at those four things and look at them from a biblical perspective. But before we even get to those things, before we start those things next week, uh, we've got to get a couple of biblical bookends put firmly in place. Because it's a... It's a crazy cultural moment. John Tyson, who's a pastor up in New York City, the church of the city, he had a series I listened to a couple of years ago called The Controversial Jesus, which put this series kind of germinating in my mind. And I'll just quote him about the crazy contradictions that are happening in this last little bit, specifically the last 30 or 40 years in our culture. Quote him. We have the rise of the gay rights and the rise of the alt-right all at the same time. We have the loss of religious liberty for the bakers and pizza shop owners in the election of the Supreme Court of a pro-religious liberty Supreme Court justice at the same time. There is a decline of the church and the rise of the nuns and the rise of the megachurches. We have the Me Too movement rushing through our world at the exact same moment as Shades of Grey picturing domination of a woman is the fastest and largest selling book among women of all time. We have the rise of hate speech and the defending of free speech. And we could just, I could throw statistic after statistic after statistic about where we are culturally in our nation. Most sociologists say we're around 50 to 70 years behind Europe and I happen to be actually in London this past week working with some of our leaders of the church plant that we're helping launch there in the spring. And one of the things I did is try to read up on Europe. And again, if we're 70 years behind Europe right now, London, England, the place that had Spurgeon and John Wesley and William Wilberforce and John Newton is now 2.8% professing Christian. 2.8% professing Christian. They have gone from the post-Christian era to now they're almost the whole gamut and now they're almost at the pre-Christian era, which in some ways is amazingly exciting because you don't have to go through all the religious trappings to actually get to the gospel. And so what do we do with this? Churches typically respond to culture in two errors. Before we jump into our text, I wanna just throw these out there because these are the extremes we do not want to go to. These are ones that are usually pigeonholed. Church, you gotta pick one or the other. Uh, One extreme that churches and Christians tend to pick is to condemn culture. Just condemn it, just condemn it. Retreat back into our churches, bring up the drawbridge, go back into our subcultures of Christianity, stay well away from the sinful, corrupted culture. And loved ones, while we are definitely called to be holy people, God definitely calls us to holiness. Not engaging in relationships with people not getting our hands dirty in ministry is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. And it's also antithetical to the way you see Jesus engaging in culture. Because, you know, when you break down culture, culture is not some object out there with statistics. Culture are individual people, men, women, boys, and girls, and you see him engaging in culture. The other flip side of that that Christians and churches do is they conform to culture. They don't want to condemn it, so we'll just conform to culture, which is equally as dangerous. So what that says is whenever culture and historical, orthodox, Christian teaching disagree, culture is accommodated. What they say is, you know what, We the whole culture's going, so in order to relate to culture, in order to be relevant to culture, we've got to become like culture. What's amazing in that whole thing is that the Christians in the churches that are conforming to culture and not holding to the biblical distinctives of the gospel they're the ones actually decreasing faster than those that are holding firm to what the gospel actually says and uh when the voice of culture is greater than the word of christ that governs the church actually is no longer church all right it's a social it's a social club doing some great things so again before we address the topic starting next week is there a better way is there a better way for you and for us to live out the mission of God with the joy of God for, for the glory of God and for the good of other people? Is there a better way? There actually is. I think you see it illustrated perfectly in Luke chapter seven, and it's a story. It's actually a story about a Pharisee, a prostitute, and Jesus, and they go to a party. It sounds like a joke, doesn't it? All right, that's, but that's really what it is, all right? It's a Pharisee, a prostitute, and Jesus. They find themselves at a dinner party. So uh, I'm gonna work through this. I'm gonna give you a little context, and then we're gonna try to provide two distinctives, because here's what I know. Even after five weeks, you're gonna have more questions than we're able to answer in this series. We're gonna provide different emails, we'll provide different resources on these different topics that you can then go to. But even then, what we need is we've gotta have some parameters for the thousand different scenarios that will come up based on these four or five different topics. And so that's what my goal is today. So let's get the context, here it is. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, by the way, behold is the way the author would say, take note of what's going to happen. Something surprising is about to take place that you wouldn't expect. And so he says, behold, a woman of the city. A woman of the city, that's not like somebody who's got a condo downtown, all right? A woman of the city is a polite way. uh, Virtually every scholar says this is the polite way to talk about a, a prostitute. And so a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. We don't have any more insight than that. And by the way, uh, Bible scholars, this is not Mary of Bethany, okay? You see another scene or two that has a few similarities but also has some tremendous differences. This is not her. And so we don't know how she found out. Maybe she heard him preaching. Uh, Maybe he was preaching and their eyes met just a little bit and she saw grace for the first time when everybody else looked at her with condemnation. It's like, I gotta do something, but something amazing happens. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, in that culture, guys would not sit at a table. They would have a small table that was about that high, and they would then lay on their side with their feet backwards, all right? The reason their feet were backwards is because, listen, they've been walking around on a bunch of dusty roads all day long. You don't want somebody's feet in your plate while you're eating. And so they would lean on an elbow, their feet would be backwards, and here's what happens. Standing behind him at his feet weeping, There's a couple different words for weeping in the Bible. This is the idea of sobbing. It's not like a tear. It's like uncontrollable sobbing that is coming from her. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So let me take a couple of points on this. The scene is the dinner of a religious leader. His name is Simon. Typically, in that day, when you would have a rabbi, which Jesus, at this point, was recognized as, that would be at least a minimal honor, if not a huge deal. Simon apparently didn't think that, as you'll see here in a few minutes, about the way that he actually didn't just view the woman, the way that he viewed Jesus as well. But there was a protocol when you had anybody over to dinner. The protocol was pretty easy. It was all spelled out, all right? You first greet the guest, either one of a couple of ways— You greet them with a kiss on the hand. It's just a sign of, hey, I'm glad you're here. You and I would maybe say a handshake, a high five, whatever. If somebody was like super important, you would kiss them on each cheek as well. What happens here is Jesus shows up and as you'll see here in a minute, Simon has no kiss, all right? None of that at all. Then what would happen is they would wash their feet. If you were really gonna be a servant, you see Jesus doing that to his disciples. The person, the host would actually wash the feet. Simon didn't do that. If you didn't want to wash the feet or were too busy, you could get a servant to wash the feet. Didn't do that. At least you would provide a basin of water for the guest to wash his own feet. You don't even see any of that. And then lastly, what they would do is they would provide a little bit of ointment to put on the, just one little drop on the head of the guest to kind of freshen them up after being out in the hot, dry climate all day. Simon does none of that stuff at all. He's like, yeah, yeah. Glad you're here, no respect, no reverence, nothing at all. And then verse 37, the lady comes in, she crashes the party. Verse 38, she's weeping, she's sobbing, kisses his feet, anoints his feet. Loved ones, this is a picture of repentance. You gotta see this, just in the context. The lady is repenting. This is a phenomenal act of worship that this lady is doing. One of the words for worship in the Bible is actually to fall at somebody's feet or to kiss somebody's hand. Both those things are right here, all right? She's repenting of her life. She's seeing holiness for the first time. He's holy, I am holy. He's holy, the closer I get to him, the more unholy that I am. As you're gonna see, Simon doesn't like either one of them. And you're gonna see that Jesus actually reads his mind Simon is like, I don't like either of you, I'm in the holy category. Now when you think about unholy and holy, what do you think about? Are you in the holy category or are you in the unholy category? Because there's really just two types of people, holy and unholy, holy and unholy. Simon is like, I'm in the holy category, Jesus and the woman are in the unholy category. And so Jesus is gonna stop him in these next few verses and say, Simon, you got it all wrong. I'm not just a good man, I'm the God man, all right? And there's two categories of people, holy and unholy. There's one member of the holy club, and that's Jesus. The rest of us are in the unholy club. One knows it, one doesn't. One repents, one does not. And so I'm gonna give you these two bookends, and the first one is super important for us to have. I would say everybody here, will you struggle with one of these two, if not both of them? Here's the first bookend you gotta get down. You gotta get down when you deal with culture is a gospel-centered compassion, a gospel-centered compassion. Compassion is the word from the idea that you feel something for somebody else, a gospel-centered compassion. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 says this, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw what the woman had done, crying, making a spectacle, coming in uninvited, Breaking the whole jar over his feet, and that's not for your feet," he said to himself. I love this. It's pretty awesome when you think to yourself, and then, and then, you get called out, even if you didn't say it out loud. Here's, here's what it says: If this man, if this man, this is a statement of uh, repudiation, rejection, disrespect. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what, don't miss that, who and what. It literally means from the soil. It means what kind of dirt did this woman come from? He does what is very easy. He objectifies her, she's not a person, she's a group. She's a Facebook post, she's somebody to condemn because that's the temptation. Said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. I don't know how to make this any bigger spectacle than it is. This would be like, I think Tyson makes a great equivalent. He said this would be like a a stripper coming into a pastor's monthly luncheon, and if, if your pastor were at that lunch and you'd be like what what are you doing what and then she comes over and she does something so intimate like that you'd like how do you know her how do you know her how does she know you that's how shocking this scene is and so uh the instinct was to condemn what sort of woman is this holiness to him was defined by distance from the sin association with someone was endorsement of someone gotta understand that. In the Pharisee's mind, in the religious person's mind, an association with a sinner was an endorsement of a sinner. What's scary here is, is that here was a religious leader and an expert who spent his entire life studying the scriptures. That's what's scary. This guy spent the first 12 years of his life studying and memorizing the first 12 books of the old testament by the time he was 15 he would have memorized the entire old testament and yet it was able for this guy that knew the entire old testament to somehow be blind to the 300 prophecies about a messiah who is now seated at a table right across from him and he doesn't know it what's scary about that is is that says you know what You can have a lot of information and have no inward transformation. What that means is, is that you can know something by heart and yet not have it in your heart. What that means is you can sit in church and be a church member and a pastor or a deacon or a leader or anything else and you actually just know stuff. You just don't know the Savior. It's possible that that can happen. That's scary to think about. And so here's some warning signs that you uh, might be in that same situation. Here's, here's a couple. You actually say to yourself, I could never do whatever. When you see the headline news come up or you see this protest or you see whatever over here and you say kind of deep down in your heart, I'm better than that. I'm, I'm better than that, I could never do that. I could never do that. If you actually say I could never do that, you are in a very, very precarious situation. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. They're both broken. Simon doesn't know it. She knows perfection when she sees it, and he doesn't know it. Sociologist, B'nai Brown, she did a TED Talk. I think it's got 15 million hits. And what she says is, we don't realize that what's, It's true for every one of us and it's most true for those of us who least realize it and here's what she says. She says, we are those people. The truth is we are the others. You know, the others, the others, like those people, we are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being, quote, those people, the ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the ones bad things happen to, the ones we don't want to be living next door to. And so the religious leader looks at her and says, She's dirt. She's just, she's, she's, this person is dirt. He condemns and objectifies her. Please hear me. Please, any religion that doesn't begin with a deep experience of God's grace found at the cross will leave you smug. It will leave you very, very proud, or it will lead you in despair. Okay. If you're, you take, you take the gospel out of religion. If you take the gospel out of religion, the result is always going to be one of two things. Either you're gonna be very proud and smug and condemning and judgmental. Why? Because you're doing good, you're doing good and I'm doing better than those people. Or if you are super religious and you let yourself down and you disappoint yourself and you don't understand the gospel, then you will go into despair. How could I have done that? I let myself down, I disappointed myself. That's not really me. That is a terrible, terrible place to be but that's where Simon is right now. And so... Uh, when we go back to it, it's, it's, it's not just, I could never do this, but here's another one. Is your angry, This is so, you're angry at others' sin more than your own sin. Okay. I'm not saying that you don't get angry at sin. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. What I'm saying is, is that if your default position is, I am more angry at other people's sin, I am more dismayed when I see the television and I see that sin than I do when I look in the mirror and see my sin, then you are a long way away from grace and compassion. And so when you look at it, uh, if you've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus, your primary dismay is not with other sin, it is with your own all right? Yes, we have convictions. We'll talk about it. Yes, we confront when necessary, but even when you do that, you are painfully aware of your own sin. The apostle Paul actually tells a young pastor in first Timothy, he says, you know what? I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of, that's the apostle Paul planted so many churches, won people by the thousands to Christ. And he's like, I'm the worst sinner that there is in this room. Let me just, let me kind of break this down just a little bit. The gospel is the only thing that produces simultaneously both humility and confidence at the same time. Listen to me, you gotta get this, okay? Because if you're new here, we distinguish between religion and the gospel just like the Bible does, all right? You see, most of the time when Jesus is batting heads in the Bible, it is with people who are steeped in religion. So our definition of religion is anything that tries to work their way back up to God. That's religion, that's not the gospel. The gospel is God came down to us and there's nothing that you can do to add what Jesus did on the cross, okay? You're not gonna be accepted because you gave to the poor or worked at manna or any of that stuff. You understand that Jesus is the only one God is impressed with. It's his resume that gets put to your account, and when the inside changes, then the activity changes, and then you start working at manna, then you start voluntary, then you start being generous. It's not the other way around, okay? One is legalism. Legalism is I do stuff on the outside with no change on the inside. Cheap grace is I changed on the inside, but there's no change in my lifestyle. That's cheap grace. What the gospel is, is God changes me on the inside and then it changes my activity on the outside. My identity changes, which leads to my activity changing. But here's how that works, okay? When you talk about the gospel and how you can have both humility and confidence, the reason the gospel gives us humility when you stand to culture, it gives you humility, why? Because the gospel and the cross of Jesus says that, you know what, I was so bad, Jesus had to die for me. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross, all right? So you don't just... You don't walk around with swag and you don't walk around sniveling, all right? You walk around saying, you know what, it was my sin. It was so bad that Jesus died for me. But there's confidence there because you know you're in a good situation. Because you know Jesus died for you. And words like redeemed and adopted and justified are applied to your life. So you have both humility and you also have confidence and convictions both at the same time. You're not swaggering and you're not limping Keller puts it great as well. He says, simultaneously, we are more wicked than we ever imagined, but we are more loved and accepted than we dared hope. That's the gospel, okay? So let's go on to the story. A certain moneylender, he tells him a little story. He's like, Simon, you, you wanna know what this is like? Let me tell you a story. And this is one of the shortest parables in the Bible, but it's a story that basically all this, if you just think, all, this parable is about one thing and it's about an extra zero. That's really what it is. It's about an extra, it's, it's the decimal point changing is the difference. Here's what he says. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is a amount of money, 500, 500 denarii, lots of money. And the other 50, both were debtors, both were in a difficult situation, both could not repay him. But here's what he says. But when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. And then he asked them a question. Now this is like This is like uh, elementary school religion. This is a guy that memorized the Old Testament and he asked him like kindergarten question. And the question is, now which one of them, which of the two is gonna love him more? Somebody pays off your mortgage versus somebody pays for a pack of gum. Who is going to love that person more? All right, mortgage man, that's who's gonna love him more. Why? Because it's like, that's an amazing amount of debt. And so here's what the story says. Simon answered. It's kind of he didn't really want to answer it, but it's pretty obvious. The one, I suppose, really, for whom he canceled the larger debt, and he said to him, You have judged rightly. He's been judging the whole time, but now he's like, You've judged, you've judged in the correct way. A few more verses here. Verse 44. Here's where here's where we get. We're gonna start to segue. We gotta have gospel centered compassion. But it's not simply saying, oh, everybody just hold hands and sing Kumbaya and you be you and me be me and listen, that's not what he's saying. This is the, it's not even really a balance. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Let me show you how it works in the story. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, this is kinda cool, he turns toward the woman and he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Do you see the woman? He didn't. He saw he saw a sinner. He saw a people group. He saw a political action committee. He didn't see the woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. She has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, I came in, you did nothing at all. She has done nothing but worship since I came in. Loved one, she is in tears because it's obvious she hates her life and Jesus calls her out of her sin calls her out of her life, calls her to change, and you see a picture of both worship and repentance right here. So here's what we gotta have. On one hand, we have to have some gospel-centered compassion, all right? You have to have that. We've gotta have that as a church, but it's not at the expense of the second one, and that is this, gospel-centered convictions. Gospel-centered convictions. Gospel-centered convictions. Christ never downplays or minimizes the severity of her sin in this story. Three times he calls it sin. He doesn't call it a mistake. He He doesn't say, you know what, you've had a hard life, so don't worry about the way that you're acting. He doesn't say that's an alternative lifestyle. He doesn't say it's not that bad. He doesn't say after all you've been through, Three times he says, this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. The word sin there means to miss the mark. It means to deviate from God's plan. It's the idea that God has got this amazing life where you can flourish and this is where it flourishes. So Jesus is calling her out of a life that is full of rejection and shame and misery and calling her into life with him. And uh, verse 47, again, he doesn't minimize it. He says, your sins were many. It means great, it means large. Again, Christ never calls sin less than it is. Listen to me, somebody's gonna write me an email and say, you were so easy on sin. And like, shut your mouth, I'm not easy on sin at all, all right? What I'm saying is, it's a both and. And what you see here is to picture Jesus minimizing the woman's sinful past is to miss the entire point of the encounter. The point is that even though her sins had been many, it had been habitual, it had been heinous, she had been forgiven, she had been saved, and she had been liberated so she could then love Jesus lavishly. You're like, well, I don't know if she changed or not. You can know she changed, you know why? Because the Bible clearly says, and you'll see in these last verses, that she loved Jesus. In John 14, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So it's safe to say her life changed right here. This is the gospel. This is grace, and it changed her. Again, it's not cheap grace at all. She looks at Jesus. She worships Jesus. Jesus says, I'm God. You're forgiven. Go and live a brand new life. Let me just say it again. Cheap grace, which is a term coined by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was actually a German pastor, and he was in Germany in Nazi Germany. He left, and then he felt like, you know, man, I've abandoned my people, and he went back to Nazi Germany and died there, trying to get the gospel out and to defeat Hitler. Cheap grace, what he says is, cheap grace is, uh, you know, what I believe in Jesus and I go to church, but I have no intention of my life changing at all. That's cheap grace. The other hand, legalism, legalism is me saying, you know what, look at all this stuff I've done, but my heart has not changed at all. My heart's not changed. Doesn't have any compassion, has no fruit of the spirit, has none of that at all. See, here's the cultural narrative. Listen to me, here's the cultural narrative and here's the challenge for us. The cultural narrative today is either affirmation or alienation, That's, that's that's the narrative today. It's you either affirm what we do or what I do or, you are alienated. I have nothing at all to do with you. And what you see is an amazing picture of Jesus not saying it's not alienation. It's not affirmation at all. Listen to it this way. Just because God loves you doesn't mean he agrees with you. (laughs) You Understand that? Just because God loves you does not mean he agrees with you. Love and agreement are not the same. God does not love you because he sees eye to eye with you on everything. He loves and he values you because he created you. You bear his image and he wants his great love for you to win you over to his way of life so that you become all that he made you to be. And you gotta understand that's the same way with people, okay? That's the same way with people. When it comes to people, listen, I don't need to agree with you to love you. I don't need to, and you don't need to agree with me I disagree with me about half the time anyway, so you don't need to agree with you to love you. Love and agreement are not always the same thing. You can say I love you because you are a person of great worth to God even if we disagree. You know, So we're talking about compassion and conviction. The way Jesus was described is he was a man full of grace and truth, John 1.14. John 1.14 says, here's a description of Jesus. Jesus was the God-man, And so people are like, what's God like? What's God like? What's God think about my sin? What's God think about my life? What's God think about my past? In my past, can I have a future if my past is messed up? And the Bible says Jesus was a person full. We're calling it compassion and conviction. It was called of him both grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth without grace is brutality. Brutality. Grace without truth is sentimentality. Compromising either one you take away from the gospel. Let's be clear. Some of us here, you, you lean toward the truth. You're a truth guy. You're a truth guy. You're the guy that posts those things on Facebook and it's like all truth, all truth, all truth. And thank God for you in one regard because you help make sure we don't go some weak fish, weak sauce doctrine. That's awesome. The problem what happens is, sometimes if all you have is truth with no grace, you're a brutal person to be around, much less live with. Just ask your wife, okay? On the other hand, if all you got, I'm all about grace, I'm all about grace, but you've got no truth, do you actually think you're smarter than God? Why don't you show grace even though it absolutely is what God says that is gonna lead to death and rebellion and bondage? Yeah, but I just, that just means you're a chicken. All right, if all you are is it's all grace and no truth, that's not the gospel either. It's truth and grace. It's truth and grace. So let me read the end of the story and then let's kind of make sure we understand it before we uh, kind of pray for the weeks ahead. Here's, here are the last few verses. This is awesome. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, that's conviction. Now, by the way, do you understand our message as a church is not about morals, first and foremost? You know how the church often, we often get mad at lost people for acting like lost people, okay? And some of you have been saved for so long, you've forgotten what it's like to be lost. I got saved at 17, so I had years of lostness that I can still draw on. Our first message is not morals. It's not behavior. Our first message is a Messiah, then morals, The first message is belief, belief, which will then change behavior. It's not, you need to act like us, you need to act like us. Our conviction is, you know what? Jesus died for me, he died for you, he loved me, he loves you. What he's done for me, he can do for you as well. That's it. So here it is. Therefore I tell you, our sins which are many, they are forgiven, they're taken away. That's where some of you are today. You you, you limped in here with shame, because you limped in here with religion and you need to have the gospel clearly penetrate your heart that you know what, I'm a wicked, black-hearted sinner but God loves me and paid the debt for me and if I'll repent and embrace him by faith, my past will be erased and my future will be secure. All right? That's what you need to hear, which are many, they are forgiven, why? Because she loved much, that's a picture of repentance and faith. But he who is forgiven little loves little, that's another group at to, to church today, you came in here not walking in shame. You didn't come in here with a limp. You came in here with a strut, okay? You came in here with a bunch of swag thinking God is fortunate that I'm in church today. And I showed up at church last Christmas, all right? Is this not Christmas? I showed up last Christmas. Listen, it's not that at all. Your religion is gonna do, there are, religion takes more people to hell than alcohol ever did, okay? So that's what takes people as religion. It's I did it my way. He says, he who's forgiven a little, I don't need much forgiveness, You love little. That's a picture of somebody who never embraces Christ. And here's the way the story ends. And he said to her, this is phenomenal. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this? That's why our message is about Jesus. That's why our message is about his righteousness, not our self-righteousness those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sin? By the way, some people are like, Jesus never talked about himself as being God incarnate. That's that's, that's such a poor argument. Here's just one example. It says, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, it's like, who can forgive sin but God alone? He's like, I just did it. I just did it. So let me give you a couple of uh, things to think about. Here's Listen, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love us, church, okay? Please hear me on that. But when we talk about the culture, you're like, man, I can't wait for him to throw some red meat to the dogs, man. This is gonna be awesome. Do we not realize that Jesus looks at the church first and says, you are the salt of the world. You're supposed to be the salt. You're supposed to be the light. When you look at the book of Revelation, Jesus is walking among the churches. He's not walking at the UN. He's not walking in Raleigh. He's not walking at the White House. He's walking among the churches saying, can I find a church that is gonna have both compassion and conviction? Because again, we can complain all we want to about a post-Christian culture, and I do believe we're in a, I think it's evident, we obviously are in a post-Christian culture in our country right now, but complaining about that does not help spread the gospel. A farmer yelling at the crops to grow don't make the crops grow at all. What does he do? He's gotta keep scattering the seed, scattering the seed, watering the seed, watering the seed, and then, then the crops will grow. That's what your job, your job is not to be a crusader attacking the enemy. Our job is to be an ambassador inviting the mission field to say, you know what? Jesus loves you and he's forgiven me and he can forgive you as well. That's what he calls us to do. And so when we look at this story, here's uh, wherever it is you are. I begin to think, uh, let me read you one quote by a guy named John Stott. This is about the uniqueness of Jesus and the way he's like, this is it's, all, it's about Jesus. It says, one of the most extraordinary things Jesus did in his teaching, and he did it so unobtrusively that many people read the Gospels without even noticing it, was to set himself apart from everybody else. For example, by claiming to be the good shepherd who went out into the desert to seek his lost sheep, he was implying that the world was lost and that he wasn't and that he could seek and save it. He put himself in a moral category in which he was alone. Everybody else was in darkness, he was the light of the world. Everybody else was hungry, he was the bread of life. Everybody else was thirsty, he could quench their thirst. Everybody else was sinful, he could forgive their sins. And so when he says, who can forgive sins but God alone? And he says, you know what? Your sin is forgiven, you go in peace. And so let me ask you a question. When you go to your PTA meeting, and, when you, and it, it's good, again, it's good. We're not to be the church that draws up the drawbridge. We're also not gonna be the church that just say, hey, bag the Bible, bag the Bible, let's just kinda talk about stuff, all right? We're not gonna do either of those, what do we do? Whether it's a PTA meeting or coaching your son's football team or at work or whatever, what do you do? You say, God, I wanna be a person of incredible compassion and I wanna be a person of courageous conviction. Somebody ought to be able to look in your neighborhood and go, you know what? She is the most compassionate person I know. Do people say that about you? Hey, truth guy, do people say that about you? That's the most compassionate guy, you know what? When I'm struggling, when I'm hurting, I'm going to him. Or how about this? If I really want somebody to talk to me the way that truth is, I'm gonna go to her. So the goal would be, it's like, I wanna be a person of both compassion and conviction. So here's what happened last week. A bucket list happened. Because you're like, how is this, this going to penetrate culture? How's this gonna, I don't know exactly how this is all going to work. I mean, we're here in little old Western North Carolina with a density of population, a fraction of what you see in places. And even when I was walking around London, or, uh, whenever that was, a week ago or so, it's like the density of people. I didn't realize it. it's like the largest financial one-mile radius in the entire world, bigger than Manhattan. And so, that, man, thank God we're helping plant a church right, right there, right, man? It's like Rome was 2,000 years ago. If you can reach that city and the gospel then goes back out because people come there for a year and then they go out. And so we were working with the church planners and looking at facilities and all this kind of stuff, but one afternoon we had a little bit of time to do what they call a Christian heritage tour. Christian heritage tour was basically going to all the spots around London where God had moved in some remarkable ways. You went to these different places and here's where, you know, this happened here and this happened there and Wesley this and Spurgeon and that and all. It was, it's phenomenal, right? All right. Cause I'm kind of a little bit of a church history geek. So I'm like, this is like amazing. But I tell you what, we came to one church. I've got to show you a picture of this thing. Okay. This was like a bucket list. I got to sit there and I wasn't going to go up there for a while because that was actually the church where the guy named John Newton pastored. You're like, who's John Newton? I'll tell you that in a second. So I'm up there. And I don't even know what to say. They're like, go up there, go up there, go up there. I was like, I don't want to go up there. I felt like I was like, I don't want to go up there. It's like, so I go up there and I just start reading the Bible. I just start reading the Bible. The guy's like, read out of 1 Chronicles 17. So I was like, I just up there reading the Bible. Like, What does that have to do with about Christ and culture? Here's what it has to do. When you think about Christ and culture, real quick little synopsis, John Newton, the guy who pastored that church, he didn't always pastor that church. John Newton earlier on was a slave trader. He rode on the slave trips. He abused the people. That horrendous, that's who John Newton was. God saved John Newton out of that wickedness. And when John Newton was saved out of that wickedness, he then obviously, then his life changed and he left the whole slave trade, eventually went into ministry. So he's pastoring this church. He wrote the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's that John Newton. That's the guy that wrote that. But what he also did is he discipled a guy named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was like a part of parliament when he was like 21 years old. And he kind of drifted from his faith and then through some different circumstances, God called him back to his faith He's like, what do I do now? What do I do now? Do I get out of government? Do I get out of parliament? What, What is my cause? And he went to John Newton and at that same church, they huddled over there in the corner and John Newton discipled him. And it says, it could be for such a time as this that God wants you to stay in parliament, stay where you are and make a difference where you are. And he said, eventually says, I am here to help abolish the slave trade. And so over the next few years, William Wilberforce was the key vehicle by almighty God to make sure that the slave trade eventually, years later, was eventually abolished. And do you know three days before William Wilberforce died, three days, a little messenger boy came to him and says, hey, I want you to know, I want you to know that slavery was just outlawed. He hears that message. Next day, he drifts from consciousness. Next day, he dies what's my point? My point is both Newton and Wilberforce ground into them was distinct compassion for people. They helped the poor. They helped the out ostracized. They helped the outcast deep, deep compassion, but at the same time, strong, deep conviction about God's word. And we need to be those same people.